Hello everyone, welcome to the final episode of Cold Wave Soundtrack. I'm Aaron Pollock. Cold Waves 10 is just weeks away, taking place September 22nd through the 25th at Metro, Smart Bar, Riviera Theater, and La Nocturne. Cold Waves is a celebration of Chicago's relationship with industrial music, the memory of a fallen brother, and a fundraiser for Darkest Before Dawn, a nonprofit providing resources and support for workers in the nightlife industry. For more information, including the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week, we are chatting with Friday Metro headliner, Wes Isel. This is Cold Cave.
The last time we talked, it was, as I mentioned before the show, about five years ago. And then a little bit after that, you hooked up with Wax Tracks Records and, and did a little short tour of ministry to help promote their uh, their amazing documentary, Industrial Accident. Oh, yeah. So Wax Tracks always has a huge presence in Cold Waves. They always have a booth set up downstairs. And they've influenced, you know, most, if not all, of the acts that play every year. So tell me a little bit about your history with, with Wax Tracks. Oh, well, it was incredible to do that tour. And I hadn't seen the documentary prior to that tour. And... Um... I loved it. I've watched it a few times post tour also when it was streaming finally. Um, I think it's a great story. I wasn't aware of all that because of my age. I mean, I knew like the bands, the records, but not about the owners and stuff, you know, and the, and the history of that. And yeah, it was awesome to do those shows with ministry. It was sort of the most fun tour we've ever done. Cause I think it was only like six or seven shows and they were just at opposite points of the country every day or, or continent every day. And we drove the whole thing, which was like an impossible drive. So it was like LA to Chicago, to New York, to Toronto, to Austin in like five days or something like that. It was psycho to drive like that. But um, yeah, and the ministry set list was incredible. And then, you know, the last show was in Los Angeles. The, the tour was rumored that they were going to have the fence up for that tour. And I think it just didn't happen until this last, this last tour that they just did. But um, yeah, it was incredible. The, the band was they were great every night. I loved it. But yeah, I mean, Wax Tracks for me, I, I owned Wax Tracks records growing up. I was a fan of Thrill Cult, especially. I remember being terrified of seeing the tapes when I was in like seventh grade and eventually bought them and loved them. I still order. I recently have ordered a few things from Wax Tracks this day. I got the Coil reissue and the Thrill Cult reissue. And um, yeah, I think one of the most fun parts of playing cold waves prior was just seeing all of the sort of relic merchandise that they had available you know like old ministry posters and stuff like that it was really cool yeah it's like, it's like a mini museum when they when they travel and they come out for that yeah it's awesome it's awesome and then they had they had a um they were at the cruel world festival here also which you know was, which is cool all right. So then COVID hits, it, it locks everyone down. Uh, how are, how are you able to keep sane when you, you know, weren't able to perform or, or do most things that almost anyone wanted to do? Well, I wasn't able to keep that sane. Honestly, I, I went into, I went, I was on tour with my other band when everything shut down. Like we had one show left the tour at the Fonda in Los Angeles. I think it was March. Um, I should know this date. It was March 16th. And it was canceled. Every show had been happening prior to that, but they started getting strange. Like Seattle was awful. San Francisco was awful. Like we played the Fillmore to like 500 people. You know, there should have been like a couple thousand. It was weird. And every show that we played, it was the last show that that venue was open for. They just shut down after that. So we get home, I have one show left, gets canceled. Then that day, same day the show canceled, Genesis Peorage, who's a close friend of ours, passed away. So these two sort of, um, there's the pandemic happening. We lose a close friend first. And then, um, you know, just everything is so confusing and, and spiraling. And we have, we're about to announce another tour for our band, for Cole Cave. That never was even announced. It just didn't happen. It just was folded. And I spent the next year or so 
just trying to go into hyperdrive to not actually, I guess, recognize the severity of the situation or the strangeness of the situation. Cause I, I couldn't give into it. I felt like if I surrendered to, to just staying in and doing nothing and I already have so much internal doom that I couldn't handle any external doom. So I just, you know, we, we have a, uh, Amy owns a bookstore here in Los Angeles and I, I help her with it. That was a major point of contentment because we had this huge financial problem with the store being shut down and we had bills and then there was riots here and glass was getting broken. It was all fucked up. So I just started going out every day. I would go to the store. I would open it. I'd fix it with her brother and we would just take care of shit. And then I'd come home, be there for her, be a dad. But I also had this um, missing fulfillment that I crave for whatever reason, which is, although I'm quite shy and, and not that sociable of a person in my actual life, I do feel some urge to perform or express or communicate publicly in front of people. So I would do like Q and A's and stuff like that and just talk to people and talk to fans and talk to friends more than I had in years and certainly more than I have since then. But I, I filled that time just being there, just trying to be present for people. You know, I got a lot of work done. I got some record. We made a record. We put out books, a poetry journal. We did a book with Alan Vega and his estate. I did three books with Mark Lanigan. Well, four rather actually. And, you know, I was, I hustled, I hustled. We were, did our websites and turned it into something functional for us. So lockdown ends, you, you come back and you do East coast, West coast, and you perform cherish the light years uh, to celebrate the, the anniversary. Uh, so how did that feel to, to get back out and perform again? It was awesome. The shows were really special for me. And I believe the people who attended them, we did the will turn in Los Angeles and Webster hall in New York playing that record was fulfilling when, when that record came out. I didn't, ever get to perform every song that was on that record. I had like weird lineups. It didn't really ever work out the way I had imagined it. So it, it took nearly a decade to uh, perfect it probably as much as it could be for a live setting, you know? So that was really gratifying and rewarding. Certainly the warmth of the crowd was a huge part of that for me. I feel like it's sort of like what should have happened upon release of the record in 2010 and just didn't you know it was too it was just off for whatever reason you also put out fate in seven lessons which was a more substantial release than you had been putting out was that because of covid that you had more time to, to put things together or is that just where you were at that you had that much output to, to put something longer out tell me a little bit about that release i think um it's longer, but you know, we had the title before we had the song. So it was conceptual. It wasn't, um, it wasn't like we got to seven songs and couldn't make any more or anything like that. It was, it was just the idea. We liked the, I guess the magical aspect of the number and the concept of fate. We were originally just going to call it fate. And then we liked fate and seven lessons. It was made during lockdown. Yeah. So that was a big part of it. You know, it was recorded at home. It wasn't made in the studio. It was, uh, mostly done by Amy and I, and then uh, our sometimes live guitarist Anthony played some guitar on it for us. I think it differs from other records we've had. It's it's a little more like guitar driven and more slower and mid tempo, a little dirtier. And I don't think it's a um, an exact indication of what Cold Cave is or where we're going to be. I think it's just a moment in time 
I really like it. Like my favorite songs on it are um, like Honey Flower and Happy Birthday Dark Star and sort of the songs that didn't get that much attention. I think are ones that will probably end up playing more. They just feel right to me. You talked a little bit about this before, but I want to talk a little bit about the the Daily Planet bookstore. Uh, I had Andy Harriman on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying how excited she was that you were carrying her book, Somewhere Lace, Somewhere Leather, her book about 80s goth scene. Oh, cool. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the, the curation and, and deciding what, what to put in the store. I'm certainly a part of that. It is definitely Amy's world. I know Amy found that book years ago, and that book has just, through multiple presses, going out of print, back in print, like... Sh- there's just been like hundreds and hundreds of those gone through the store. Like it's, it's, it's quite a phenomenon there actually. For me, it's sort of a one-stop shop. It's the best of poetry, the best of books about music. I think the record selection is actually perfect. Um, there's incredible incense and candles. You can buy cigarettes there. You could buy whatever like imported magazine there. You could buy the, and like an obscure card for someone there it's just the perfect store for all things that interest me and it is primarily curated by amy i find things and bring them to her and i help with all the online stuff but it's it's her vision you know and um she she started working there um i mean the store has been there since 1989 so it's it's still in the same location same name she started working there when she was in college as a, just a part-time job and then it, eventually the owners made it known to employees that they were thinking about getting rid of it or selling it. And she'd approach them and asked if she could buy it and they sold it to her. And so it's been, it's been growing. And that was, that was about 12, 13 years ago now. And it's just been growing ever since. And it's just a cool place to be. There's good music on there's people like-minded people going in there all day. We're in Hollywood. So there's just an array of like freaks going in there. There's like weird celebrities in there all day. It's a cool little spot. I don't know. I love it. I'm thankful to be a part of it. And I do all my mail order from the office there. It's just our headquarters. We can walk there from our home. I don't know. It's just home. Yeah, that's cool. It, it just sounds like a timeless place that that I can't really name that many places that are like that anymore that are still around. Dude, exactly. Like it reminds me of a, like a weird wonderland I would have walked into in like the late 80s, early 90s, just been like, I could die here. You know, it's like it. those, those are the existence of those places has sort of frayed. So I think, it, I think it's an important store.
So you probably need a break, but I would just like to formally put in a request for a round two of more handwritten lyrics to be created because I missed out on that. And now they're all sold out. And I'm very sad about that. Man, that was, I couldn't believe the response to that. I think I did close to 900 total. And then I, I just, like every now and then I put like one or two back up, but not say anything. And those would sell out also. It actually was just so painful and then uh it started as this really gratifying uh experience and i felt like i was a writer with a paid day job but then i it sort of shifted into this like hellscape where i couldn't escape my past and i was just rewriting like these songs over and over and over again but i was also so thankful that people wanted them and i um you know i have a, a lyric sheet that marky smith wrote the song frightened from the first fall record love the wish trials and i have that framed on my wall and it's such an important thing to me just seeing people sharing photos of these sheets that i wrote framed and in their home it's so humbling and beautiful it's something i make could mean to them what something i cherish means to me you know i mean i i feel like i haven't heard of that being a thing more than a couple of years ago and uh, at some point when I guess, you know, music sales were dying and everyone's trying to figure out how to actually make money as a musician that some of the extra perks would just be like handwritten lyrics of something. And, you know, and I have signed records, but, you know, I'm looking right now at I have another space song by Failure and that has the lyrics uh, written out. Oh, that's cool. It just seems more meaningful and more personal. And I, I think... You know, like, like you said, I'm sure it's torture to have to do it over and over again. But at the end of the day, it just seems like such a, a great artifact to be able to put on display and, and be able to look at and, and just enjoy. I think so. And I think a big part of um, the connection I have with with people is is lyrical. And I think so. It's just an extension of the whole of the whole world, you know. I, I saw a, a few weeks ago or a few months ago, you you put up a, a podcast that you were, had been working on with Mark Lanigan, the After Dark podcast. Uh, I wanted to wanted to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So immediately upon shutdown, Mark was he he, he was a close friend of mine, and uh, we talked often. He was one of the few friends I had, and certainly one of the few people that I talked to frequently. Um. He was unlike anyone else, but anyway, anyway, during immediately upon shutdown, he was like, "Fuck," because he had tours canceled. Also, he's like, "I don't know what I'm gonna do for income, etc." I was like, "Well, hey, let's do a book together. I can like kick you a little bit of money. It'll work. I, I want to see what you write. I think you should be writing poems." And he was down for it, so we did a book called Plague Poems. He loved it. He loved the experience. He had just finished writing uh, his autobiography, Sing Backwards and Weep, and uh, he was just on a, he was on a tear. He's on fire. And then he said, hey, we should do a podcast together. Maybe that'll be a way to supplement missing shows. On top of that, I just want to hang out with you more, and we don't live far from each other. So during the shutdown, he was one of the few people I saw because... I could just drive to his garage studio and hang out with him. And he was always going to be there. And I was always going to be there for him. We decided to call it after dark. He recorded them at his house, which is so funny. Just like watching him like chain smoking and just like 
cables tied everywhere around his feet and just like a chaos trying to work the microphones and like get everything going, which, which he did every time. Like, I don't know how, but he somehow figured it out, but we never really got to the point of making actual episodes. The ones that we did were just like trial ones with our friends to see, see if we could get the gear going and try to get a feel for where we wanted to go with it. We did like one or two episodes recordings where it was just Mark and I just rapping, you know, and the idea was to sort of be the conversations you'd hear or that you would have, you, you would be an, you would be like a voyeur to a conversation between two friends in similar worlds, both creative sitting at like Denny's from like 11 PM to 3 AM. You know, that was sort of the idea or like on a, on an all night drive, you know, the sort of candid open conversations that wean in out of serious and sarcastic and like immature and mature, you know, that was the idea. So we did one with Dylan from earth, who was a friend of Mark's and a friend of mine. And then, um, Peter Hook and his son, Jack, Calvin Johnson, who's a mutual friend of Mark and I, and uh, Warren Ellis. I don't know. Those are just trial ones. So I had people at the time who wanted to shop the idea of Mark and I doing a podcast. So we were recording these for fun and to give to these people just because they had an idea that someone was going to like get behind it and put it out places. And it was going to be this like thing that Mark and I did immediately upon handing them to him mark landed in a coma in ireland he split from la moved to ireland we were still going to do the podcast and uh yeah he he fell into the coma for for months um during that time there were meetings happening about the podcast and like what should happen with them i just kept saying like i can't do this i can't make a decision one because Mark's not here to talk about it with me. And two, I don't even know if he's ever going to be able to talk again. I don't know. He's like, he's in a coma. So the idea of it becoming some thing of stature fell apart, which I was okay with. When Mark got out of the coma, we talked about it and he wanted to try it again and to keep going with it. And I did too, but I wanted to give him some space to uh, heal after coming out of the coma. He was only out for a few months before he passed away. So that was it. I didn't know what to do with the recordings. I talked to his family, his his sister and, and his uh, his wife. And they were like, you should just put him up. I think people would want to hear him. And so I did. The first episode, I guess it would be called the pilot episode, is just Mark and I. And it's sort of how I, I like to remember him. We just felt at ease around each other. And we just we would just smile when we saw each other. It was like you were around someone who knew and shared things that you had been through and feelings that you had been in like bad places you had been and dark things you had felt. And there was just an understanding that equaled ease and comfort with each other. And so we spent our time together just laughing. We always laughed. I think there was a lot more for him to do and certainly for us together to do. He handed in all his poems before he passed for, the, for a trilogy of uh, poetry books that we had done together. And it's just unfortunate. I think he's the greatest singer of, of our time. And I, I don't think there's anyone who's a better singer than him. I just think it's a shame that he's gone from the world before the world got to truly appreciate his greatness. It's a small consolation that, you know, that, that you have this podcast that you can listen to and other people can enjoy and be able to have those things to hold on to. Yeah. And that was the idea. You know, I know like, 
and we had a whole list of people we wanted to do next. I know like Dave Gahan wanted to do it. And it was just going to be this great thing where we took people out of their element and how they're typically perceived and just put them on like friend level, real talk, you know, I think like between the two of us, we had weird access to, to um, a combination of people that probably couldn't be involved in that way, any other way. Um, okay. I, I know what are up on our time here. So we're, we're going to see you at cold waves in New York. We're going to see you at cold waves in Chicago. You're going to be playing uh, San Francisco two nights. You're going to do some uh, poetry in between there. Um, do you have anything else upcoming, either show-wise or music-wise, you wanted to share? Yeah, we're recording right now. I'm finishing a books right, several books right now. Um, this is a book I've been working on forever. Uh, the early poetry of Genesis Peoridge. That's almost done after ten years or so. Um, and aside from that just check out the heartworm.com. We're constantly updating stuff, you know, and that, that links into the daily planet and sort of our whole world. And um, I'm excited to play cold waves. I'm excited to be back in New York. Definitely excited to be back in Chicago. It's been a while. And um, I don't know, I'm ready. I'm ready for life to resume. I feel like we came out of the, um, the shutdown with more purpose and uh, more love. And we want to share that.
On this episode, you heard Happy Birthday Darkstar, Honeyflower, and Promised Land. Cold Cave can be found at shop.theheartworm.com. Our opening music is Euthanasia by Acumen Nation. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. For more information on bands performing but not interviewed this year, check out episode 907 with Actors, 706 with Contraboid, 505 with Revolting Cox, 718 with Caustic, 912 with Front 242, 807 with Nitzer Ebb, 811 with Light Asylum, and 915 with Pantera. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, Jamie Duffy. Here is Derek Newhall sharing one of his memories. See you in Chicago. So I moved to Chicago in 2009, by which I mean I moved to the northwest suburbs for work. But I went to the city at least twice a week for shows and nights out and such. I think I first formally met Jamie in 2011. Of course, I'd seen him here and there, and I knew who he was, but we hadn't formally been introduced yet. Dave Schock was putting on his WT2 Records mini-fest at the Abbey in town which is a show I fondly remember because it's where I actually met many of the people who are now my closest friends in the scene. As the show finishes, everyone starts leaving to go to Neo for the after party. I offered to give my buddy Joe Graham a ride, since he had a ride from out of state and therefore didn't have a car. He then suggested we bring Duffy, since he also needed a ride. I said, sure, why not? I drove us all there, and as I pull up in front, there's this one tiny parking space directly right across from the door, and Jamie was absolutely convinced my car could fit. Now, I had become enough of a city driver where I can parallel park as well as anyone else, but I looked at that spot and said I wasn't even going to try to fit my car in there. Get out, he demands. So I get out of the car and switch seats with him, and then, while fairly inebriated, he proceeded to try and parallel park my car in that spot for a good five minutes. He knew when to stop when the car behind us started beeping. Finally, he gave up and then, without giving us any warning, raced down the road, again, while still fairly drunk until he found a spot on the other side of the road where he pulled a Blues Brothers-esque U-turn right into the spot. Then he bought us all shots. While thinking about the story again, I actually found the Facebook post I made right after this happened. I said, I learned more about how to drive in the city from 10 minutes of Jamie Duffy driving my car than two years living here. I also remember the last time I talked to Jamie. It was at Neo, may it also rest in peace, and he asked if I wanted a shot. I think I was also drinking with Sean Payne of Cyanotic that night. He asked what I wanted, and I said Jack Daniels. He then made a face of what can only be called disgust and said, how about Jameson? Who was I to argue? A week later, you know, happened. That day, a bunch of us went to a bar called the Irish Oak to do shots in his memory. Between the tears, and shit, there were so many tears, I believe we communally killed at least 20 bottles of Jameson within only an hour or so. Now, it's interesting. Since moved away from Chicago, I cannot stomach Jameson. I can drink Bushmills, Redbreast. Other Irish whiskeys are fine, but I cannot drink Jameson. I might choke it down if need be, but I will never, ever order it. I like to think it's a fitting tribute to him that I can't drink his favorite drink anymore due to apparently overindulgence at his wig. Maybe I'll have one tonight for old time's sake. To Jamie Duffy, may his memory be eternal.